If only there was a way to keep track. The lead starts right now. Turns out the White House did not keep a visitor's log for guests at President Biden's private Wilmington home where five more pages of classified documents were found as the president's personal lawyer tries to explain. And then Ukrainian officials now say it was a Russian cruise missile designed to take out aircraft carriers that struck an apartment building, killing at least 40 people. Could the weapon system the U.S. is sending Ukraine have prevented that? Plus, you've never seen this angle for a game inside access to the extensive medical teams at every NFL game, from the doctors who are the eyes in the sky to the first responders on the sidelines. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper, and we start today in our politics lead. Controversy still swirling around the White House after it announced over the weekend that five more pages of classified documents were found in President Biden's Wilmington home. Questions are mounting today about what security measures were in place around these documents, as the White House Counsel's Office confirms there are no visitor logs for the president's private residence. CNN's Arlette Signs begins our coverage today with how the president's attorneys are explaining transparency or lack thereof surrounding the discoveries. President Biden refusing to answer questions today as pressure mounts. Will you testify before the special counsel? CNN has learned the president is personally frustrated with how the classified document saga has unfolded. This as more details about the classified documents at his Wilmington, Delaware home come to light. The White House on Thursday morning saying Biden's personal attorneys searching a room adjacent to the president's Wilmington garage found one page of classified material. Over the weekend, the president's White House lawyer revealing he traveled to Delaware on Thursday evening and five additional pages with classification markings were discovered. It's the latest example of a shifting narrative from a White House on defense, now referring all questions to the Justice Department as the special counsel investigation gets underway. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly. The president's personal attorney defending their information sharing approach, saying they're working, quote, to balance the importance of public transparency where appropriate with the established norms and limitations necessary to protect the investigation's integrity. But Republicans promising investigations are sounding off. The administration hasn't been transparent about what's going on with President Biden's uh, possession of classified documents. The House Oversight Chairman demanding visitor logs for the president's Delaware home. But today, the White House and Secret Service say they simply don't exist. The White House counsel adding, like every president across decades of modern history, his personal residence is personal. Some Democrats acknowledging the situation has been messy. It's certainly embarrassing, right? I mean, it's embarrassing that you would find a small number of documents. I still would like to see Congress do its own assessment of uh, and receive an assessment from the intelligence community of whether there was an exposure to others of these documents, whether there was harm to national security in the case of either set of documents with either president. But as he celebrated the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, the president trying to keep the focus on the future. This is a time for choosing. Will we choose democracy over autocracy or community over chaos? Love or hate? These are the questions of our time. 
And Pamela, some new reporting in from our colleagues Paula Reed and Evan Perez, whose sources have told that there may be additional locations tied to President Biden that could be searched. Now, it's unclear who exactly would conduct this search or where those searches would be, but it comes as these sources, while they did not detail exact locations, uh, there are other offices that were tied uh, to President Biden. And of course, he did rent a home here in uh, Northern Virginia in the years after he left the White House. All of these these issues could be things that the special counsel could look into in the coming months. All right. Thanks so much for lot signs at the White House. I'd like to bring in CNN senior national security correspondent Alex Markhard and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. So that is notable what Arlette said there um, from reporting from Evan Perez and Paula Reed about the possibility of more searches, because as we know, Ellie, up until now, it has been the president's personal attorneys who don't have security clearances who have been going to his homes and finding these documents. Now there's a special counsel investigation. Again, we don't know who's going to be doing these searches, but what is the significance of that? Well, Pam, this is rule number one in any case where you're defending PR-wise or legally, know all the facts. You have to know everything that's out there. And so if there are any other homes, offices, automobiles, file cabinets where there could be documents, you had better search them. Because if you're a lawyer on this case representing Joe Biden or the White House, you need to know all the facts. Now, the big question is, who will do these mm -hmm. searches? There's a big, big difference between Joe Biden's own legal team doing the searches and DOJ going and getting a search warrant like we saw in Mar-a-Lago. Now, if you're Biden's team, you want to do these searches on your own and you want to do them in a way where you can assure DOJ and reassure them you don't need to go get a search warrant. You don't need to bring the FBI agents with the jackets down here because we did the search in a complete and comprehensive way. And it will be up to DOJ to decide whether they're satisfied with that. But do you think that given just the political implications here, too, with the Trump investigation, Ellie, that that ultimately DOJ could decide, you know what, we're going to send in FBI agents just to, to, to show fairness, even though there are clear differences between the two cases. Yeah, so it's a delicate, really political judgment for the attorney general and for DOJ. I think what DOJ is looking at here is what are all the circumstances? Because while Biden's team has not been completely transparent or really, frankly, fully forthcoming in its statements, they have made efforts to cooperate. And there's no evidence at this point that they've affirmatively obstructed justice. We look at the Trump Mar-a-Lago situation. By contrast, there was an extended campaign of delay of misstatements. And in fact, we mm -hmm. know that obstruction is one of the crimes under investigation, which is what sort of compelled DOJ to go in and do the search warrant. So there is a factual di distinction there, but you're right. I think the AG has to think about what the political appearance is here as well. Yeah. And Alex, the White House uh, special counsel's office says uh, there are no visitor logs for President Biden's personal residence, his Wilmington home. How unusual is that? Well, Pamela, this really highlights the difference between a president's government residence, so in this case, the White House, of course, and the, the president's uh, primary private residence, so the, the, the president's house in, in Wilmington, Delaware. Who would uh, maintain those types of visitor logs? That would fall to the Secret Service. So we have the White House uh, counsel of the president saying that a personal home is personal. And that is being backed up by the Secret Service saying uh, we do not maintain visitor logs at private homes. Um, that they do, uh, they do make sure that the area is secure. Uh, they do screen pe people before they come over to a private residence. Uh, but that ultimately it is up to uh, the president and the president's staff uh, to make sure that the people who are coming to the property um, are allowed to be there. So there is no formal visitor log. Now, I was just speaking with a former uh, official at the Secret Service 
who said that there may be some tidbits, there may, there, there may be some information about people who did come and go, but that, that Republicans may eventually be able to get their hands on, but there is no formal visitor log. So it's, it's unlikely that, that Republicans uh, carrying out oversight will be able to, to get their hands uh, on, on records like that. And Ellie, how might the fact that there are no visitor logs at the private residences um, complicate potentially this investigation for DOJ? So I think you hit the nail on the head there, Pam. It does complicate the investigation for DOJ, but it doesn't mean they're at a dead end. There's no nice, neat one document that says date of visitor, name of visitor. However, you can still reconstruct this. You can ask other people around Joe Biden. Ultimately, you could probably ask Joe Biden, but there would be records of this. There would be people who know who went into that house. So it does make the task much more complicated because you don't have that one document, but it's still something DOJ can and should look into. Let's talk about just big picture here. We now have, uh, since 2016, um, three candidates to choose from to be president, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, um, President Biden, who have all had issues with handling classified information. So does it raise the question for you, Alex, that this could not only be a problem about the person, but also the U.S. classification system? I think it really comes down to, to two things. And like you, I've been speaking to people uh, about this. The first is that there is no clear system in place that is preventing this kind of thing from happening. When offices like the former Vice President Biden's office or former President Trump's offices are being packed up, clearly classified information uh, is making its way into those boxes. Um, so there's no, there's no oversight there or, or, or mechanism to stop that from happening. But you're absolutely right. There is a conversation, not just now, but a conversation that has been going on for years mm-hmm. in the national security space, in the intelligence community, about this question of classification and overclassification. There are countless people in government, outside of government, who agree that there, are, that there is way too much classification, that, that things that are not all that sensitive uh, do end up getting classified. Things that are very much in the open source uh, out in the world that you could Google, you and I could Google, end up getting uh, classified. There is an oversight body called the Information Security Oversight Office whose director wrote to President Biden last year saying, we can no longer keep our heads above the tsunami of digitally created classified records. And the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, is on the record uh, in a letter to senators that the Wall Street Journal uh, got saying that this undermines uh, democratic values because it undermines transparency for the American people. So there are certainly things that, uh, that are classified that don't necessarily need to be. But we need to remember our reporting shows that these doc- some of these documents that were found mm-hmm. in President Biden's possession are, were classified at some of the highest levels and exactly. had to do with things like Ukraine and Iran. That was the case for both Trump and Biden. Where is, is the most legal exposure potentially for President Biden, Ellie? Well, Pam, I think we have to look at certain statutes that relate to the mishandling of classified or sensitive document. And much like Alex was just describing, when it comes to our classification system, the legal system here, there's not one straightforward law that governs all of this. There's really about a half dozen or so different laws that in different ways manage destruction or hiding or mishandling of classified or sensitive information. Ultimately, though, the big question there, Pam, is did Joe Biden know or did anyone else know about these documents being removed? And was there any criminal intent? Really the same operative questions for the Trump investigation. So I think we're looking at the same sets of statutes minus obstruction, which is only an issue on the Trump side right now. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, knowledge and intent will rule the day, though. All right. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Coming up, the deadly Russian missile strike that leveled a Ukrainian apartment building. Could U.S. defense systems have stopped it? 
And then the ground is so wet in California roads that they are just crumbling away. When will residents get a break? In our world lead, Ukraine says a missile designed to sink ships nearly obliterated this apartment building. At least 40 people were killed in the Russian attack over the weekend, making it one of the deadliest attacks against Ukrainian civilians since Russia invaded nearly a year ago. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky calls it a, quote, war crime. And as CNN's Fred Plykin reports, Ukrainian officials say the death toll is likely to rise. While rescue crews are still sifting through the debris, the chance of finding any more survivors is virtually zero. A gaping hole where dozens of families once lived. As you can see here, this building was completely annihilated all the way down to the ground floor. And the Ukrainians say the reason why the damage is so extensive is that the Russians used a cruise missile called the KH-22. That is designed to destroy whole aircraft carrier strike groups. And when it hit the building, the building just completely collapsed and buried dozens of people underneath. A miracle that anyone survived at all, Ukrainian authorities say. Katarina Zilenska was pulled from the rubble by rescuers hours after the strike, but her husband and one-year-old son remain unaccounted for. And this video shows happier times for the Koronovsky family. Father Mikhailo Koronovsky was killed in their apartment, their distinctive yellow kitchen, like their family, torn apart by the massive explosion. 15-year-old Maria was also killed in the blast. Dozens of relatives, classmates and teachers coming to pay their final respects. She was an incredible child, her class teacher says. God is taking the best of ours. This is what happened. The Kremlin denies its forces were behind the strike and instead claims a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile hit the building. The Ukrainians say that simply isn't true, and Dnipro's mayor tells me his city and the country need more Western air defense systems. Western countries give us air defense systems, he tells me, but unfortunately it's not enough and it comes with delays. More air defense systems are the only thing that can save our civilians in our cities. And while they wait, these scenes repeat themselves again and again. And Pamela, tonight an angry Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that Ukraine has already launched an investigation and has vowed to bring those who are behind these strikes to justice in front of an international criminal court. Now, he also said that the uh, rescue and recovery effort is going on, but essentially what we're seeing here on the ground right now is a clearing operation. The folks here are using some pretty heavy equipment already, and a staggering number for you. The Ukrainians say that they have already cleared around 8,500 tons of debris from here. It just goes to show the scale of destruction that was brought on by this missile strike, Pamela. Just awful. Fred Plykin and Dnipro, Ukraine, thank you. Well, Ukraine continues to appeal to allies for more advanced weaponry and missile defense systems. The U.S. is committed to sending Ukraine the Patriot defense system. But would that have made a difference in repelling this weekend's attack? CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us now from the Pentagon. So, Oren, that's the question. Could Ukraine have shot down the Russian KH-22 missile that caused so much death and destruction in Dnipro if that Patriot system was already up and running? 
Pam, it's difficult to say with absolute certainty yes or no on this question, but we can look in different factors here. The entire purpose, the reason the U.S. has given or is giving the Patriot system to Ukraine is because it's an extremely advanced, long-range aerial defense system. That means its radar can pick up incoming threats at a greater distance, its missiles can intercept that threat at a greater distance. It has also been battle-proven in other locations against ballistic missiles, for example, in the Middle East. So we have seen its effectiveness against these types of missiles. So it may very well have been able to make a difference. But on the flip side of that, there is the open question of, would Ukraine have placed one of its Patriot systems to defend the city of Dnipro? As of right now, it's only getting two, one from the U.S. and one we just learned from Germany. You would have to believe that one of those will be used to defend Kyiv, would the other one have defended Dnipro or another area? Because these systems can't defend the entire country. That's another question, and that's what Ukraine will have to decide, where to put these very capable systems. But the whole purpose is not that the patriots on themselves will change the war. It will simply give Ukraine another option for aerial defense, a very capable option. But even that requires it to decide where to focus it, Pam. Yeah, they got to train, decide where to focus it. There's a lot of steps to go through. You also have new reporting on Ukrainian forces coming to the U.S. to be trained on that Patriot missile defense system. That training is now set to begin. Ukrainian uh, troops have arrived at Fort Sill in Oklahoma, where the U.S. does not only its own military's training on Patriots, but also other allies and partners who have come to train on the Patriot system. So we now know, according to a statement from Fort Sill, Ukrainians have arrived, a team of about 90 to 100, and they will begin training on the Patriots. This is expected to last several months, and there hasn't been a more specific timeline on that for a couple of reasons. First, the U.S. is trying to figure out how much it can accelerate this long system. And second, Pam, the U.S. doesn't want to tell Russia exactly when it will arrive in Ukraine for security and safety reasons. All right, Warren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us today. Thank you so much. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy just talked about Congressman George Santos and his lies, including one involving McCarthy's office. That's next. In our politics lead, at least seven House Republicans have called for the resignation of embattled Congressman George Santos in the wake of the avalanche of lies he told about himself. And today, there are growing questions about how he was able to loan his campaign hundreds of thousands of dollars. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live on Capitol Hill. Melanie, we have new information about how Republican concerns over Santos's backstory became louder Leading into the fall campaign, one source told me when it became clear the district was winnable, that's when people started talking more. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Pam, you've been doing some great reporting on this as well, because as more and more damaging revelations have come out, the big question has become, what did GOP leaders know and when did they know it? CNN has learned that there were concerns inside GOP circles about Santos' resume and whether his backstory really added up as far back as last summer, so prior to the election, including among donors and consultants and even lawmakers. In fact, Dan Constan, who leads a super PAC aligned with Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, was so concerned about Santos that he actually expressed those concerns and reached out to lawmakers ahead of the November election. So I asked Kevin McCarthy just moments ago, what did you know? When did you learn that something might be amiss with George Santos? Take a listen to that exchange. When were you first made aware about some of these allegations around Santos? Was it before it came out publicly in the media? Were you given any indication that there might be something amiss there? Well, which part? Uh, any of it. His uh, resume, I mean, all the things that he's I never know all about his resume or not, but I always had a few questions about it. What about him? You, you did the campaign pretending, pretending to be your chief of staff in his solicitation? You know, I didn't know about that. It happened, and I know um, they corrected, but I was not notified about that until... Uh, 
a later date. Did you speak to him about it at all? Yeah, I didn't know about it until a later date, though, unfortunately. So, as you heard right there, Kevin McCarthy is acknowledging publicly for the first time that he had any sort of apprehension about George Santos. And yet, despite these concerns, Kevin McCarthy and the GOP stood by Santos before the election, continue to support him, and they are continuing to stand by him now, Pam. They are. Um, GOP leaders, They, as you point out, they are standing by him. What overall, though, what are Republicans saying? We, we've heard from McCarthy. We've heard others who say they want him to, to resign, but only a small um, you know, handful of Republicans, considering all that are in the House. You're right. It has been a small handful of House Republicans who have called on Santos to resign, including several members of the New York delegation and from the freshman class. So that is notable to see those members standing up to Santos. But I would say for the most part, Republicans say it should be up to the voters to decide Santos' political fate. However, that doesn't mean they're defending his behavior. In fact, I would say a lot of Republicans are going out of their way to try to distance themselves from Santos. Take a listen. He's a bad guy. This is something that, uh, you know, it's really bad. Uh, he's not the first politician, unfortunately, to, to make it to Congress to lie. I haven't even introduced myself to him because, uh, you know, it's pretty despicable, the lies that he told. But at the end of the day, it's not up to me or any other member of Congress uh, to, to determine whether he could be kicked out for lying. Now, if he broke campaign finance laws, then he will be removed from Congress. So this has just become a huge distraction for House Republicans, and there are no signs of this letting up anytime soon. Pam? No, there are not. Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill, thank you so much. So let's discuss with our panel where to even start here. Um, Michael, I'm going to go with you, because sure. I've been speaking with these GOP sources. Right. We heard Melanie lay out um, some of the reporting that CNN has, and I've learned from many Republicans that they knew Santos was lying um, at least in the summer, last summer, leading into the fall, when it became clear that, whoa, this could be a winnable district for us, that's when there was this chatter, right? And we learned from the Times that even behind the scenes, there were aides pressuring Santos to resign, saying there could be a big story coming out. Why don't you think Republicans were more um, vocal publicly about this? Is mm -hmm. it because this was a, a swing district, do you mm -hmm. think? What do you think? Well, it was a district that President Biden won, I think, by about 10 points. I think George Santos ended up winning by 10 points. But you could even see in the spending um, that they were slowing their spending down over the course of the summer and into the fall and spending in other districts that were not as competitive as opposed to, the, as opposed to his district. So they must have known something was going on. Um, it's a huge problem for McCarthy. It reminds me a lot of 2001 uh, when uh, Gary Condit was this walking distraction for Democrats, this this uh, just, you know, noose around their head forever, for months, for about five months until Gephardt, the leader, finally got got sick of it and, mm -hmm. you know, basically pressured the guy out. Yeah. And as Melanie laid out, only a few Republicans um, are asking for him to resign. They keep the others are saying it should be up to the voters, but the voters voted on someone who was not the person he presented himself to be, right? right. It's going to be hard for them to outrun this. I've been spending a lot of time actually speaking to constituents in the district, and I don't think that their organizing strength should be underestimated. They're holding regular meetings. Um, they really want to see him gone. They're talking about coming to Washington in uh, large numbers to speak to any House Republican that will give them a meeting. Right. So so that is something that I think is going to become increasingly distracting for House Republicans. Yeah. And then, of course, Santos can't even operate as a regular member. Right. A lot of the members are home in their district right now holding town hall meetings. 
Mm-hmm. Meeting with constituents. That's something, of course, that he cannot do at this no, point. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. You said, well, I was going to say, you said that it's a relatively small number of Republicans who are in Congress who are calling for it. They're all the Republicans from New York who mm-hmm. would like exactly. to hang on to their jobs uh, when they're up for re-election in two years, which is basically now. You yeah. Know, is when it starts. And so they immediately want to distance themselves from him. I think it's clear to me if George Santos was a Democrat, uh, the Republican GOP leadership would be calling for his head. And if this was a clear Republican majority district where it didn't matter, um, you know, uh, who the Democrat was that you were running against, it was just mm-hmm. between the, in the nominating battle, uh, this would be done. They would be leaning on him hard. The problem is that for the political problem is it's such a small majority for the Republicans. And, and I think that drives all of this and the challenges they really don't know what the bottom is. Every time you think you know the extent of the lies, yeah. there's an alleged Ponzi scheme. Well, we still scheme. don't know there's... where he got the $700,000. Yeah. And by the way, reporters will figure that out, right? <laughs> Every reporter in the country right now uh, is trying to figure that out, among other things. So, I mean, this will likely continue each day. They need his vote and they need his seat. I'm a broken record. And I, I, Pam, I, don't th- I, I, I think they believe, and I think we all believe, I'd be stunned if he runs again. So I think it's the Republican wish that this does kind of quiet down and he doesn't make much of a fuss for two years and they'll probably lose that yeah, seat in the, two years. The problem is if, they, if he resigns and they call a special election, special elections are special for a reason. Yeah. They're very unpredictable. Yeah. And a district like that is likely to flip to the other it's side. And, and, and talk about the dip, drip, 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 too. More servicing about the lies that he has told. I want to listen to this interview that he did. A whopper of a lie from George Santos. Let's listen. You know, it's funny. I actually went to school on a, on a volleyball scholarship. And, you did? And wow. I did, yeah. Um, when I was in Baruch, we were the number one volleyball Did you graduate team, from Baruch? Uh, did you graduate from there? Yeah. So did I. I did. I did. So did I. Oh, very cool. So, great school. Great institution. Very yes. liberal, but very good. I, look, I sacrificed both my knees and got very nice knee replacements, uh, knee replacements oh, from wow. HSS playing volleyball. That's how serious I took the game. <laughs> Okay, so that was an interview he did with WABC from 2020. I cannot keep a straight face because everything he said there was a lie. He did not graduate from Baruch College. He was not part of the volleyball team, and he certainly didn't have a double knee replacement from playing volleyball if he wasn't even on the team. (laughs) Who wants to jump in on this one? I I don't even want to address that. I think as long as this is lying, he's fine, especially in this Republican Party. And I keep saying this, the leader of the Republican Party right now is Donald Trump. And we've never on the public stage had a liar like him. So it's a really tough thing for Republicans to come down on Santos for lying. If we're talking about ethics charges and some financial crimes down the road, that's a bigger deal. It's the commitment, though, to this particular lie for me, right? He told variations of this Baruch (laughs) volleyball story over and over again, which just seems really curious. It raises all kinds of questions. And, you know, Margaret, you had brought up, like, if this was a Democrat, this happened with a Democrat, Republicans would be all over it. And I think when you look at this other situation happening here in Washington with the mishandling of classified documents, the same is true, right? I mean, Republicans now say that they are very concerned about the mishandling of classified documents from Biden's time as VP. But that is not what they were saying months ago about Trump. Let's listen. All right. Well, we have sound here from Mike Turner, who is now head of Intel Agency. And he has said um, about Trump, he said, this is so outrageous that he, this has to rise to the level of this. This better not be a clerical issue between the archivist and the former president. Um, and so and then he went on Biden. He said these facts and circumstances are absolutely outrageous. This is completely mishandling of classified information. 
Um, so what do you make of that, the way that Republicans are now trying to, to respond to Biden? Um, with an extreme double standard, but I don't think it matters. Biden's the president. This is Biden's political crisis to deal with. And he or his team or his, uh, you know, whether it's his comms team or his legal team, overall, there has been uh, some some self-forced errors mm -hmm. uh, that have raised a lot of legitimate questions about whether we know the extent of this, why any of this happened. Now, because it's all tangled up in the special prosecutor, they're saying they can't explain it. That's created a new communications problem from them. Yes. Is it hypocrisy that the Republicans were like, nothing to see here, and now they want to investigate yeah. it? Sure. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter. There are a lot of questions that the president and his team are going to need to answer. And if they're hamstrung by the fact that the special yeah. prosecutors involved, I think that's their, really they created that problem. Before we have to go, I want to get your take because yeah. you used to work there. Yes. I mean, this seems to be a mess. Sure. So I think what you're seeing is that the law has been the North Star for this White House and that they are following the law. And sometimes that comes at a inconvenience to the public relations strategy, which I think is frustrating to us, to the public, to the media, to Democrats. But hold on, um, I just got to quickly push back sure. on that because they first released the statement about the one batch, even though they knew there was a second batch and didn't include that in it. So that has nothing to do with the law. No, but I do think that the communications team uh, is left with not a ton of great options because I think they are taking their lead from the legal team, from the White House counsel, from the lawyers. I think this is a legal strategy driving a communication strategy. Now, is it a political problem? It's absolutely, you know, they dumped a big bucket of chum in a pool of swimming sharks, right? They handed this to, to, Demo to Republic House Republicans who are hungry enough um, and uh, they're going to lose a lot of goodwill from uh, independent voters as a result who now think, both the parties be damned. All right. Thank you all so much for your insight and analysis. Coming up, California just got more rain in a few weeks than the state normally gets in a year. And the danger is not over. Parts of California endured yet another round of gusty winds and torrential rain, further increasing the threat of mudslides and unstable roads, killing at least 19 people over the past few weeks. But as CNN's Natasha Chin reports, a much-needed break from the rain is on the horizon. In California, another big storm after a series of atmospheric rivers ravaged the state. Eight million people still under flood watch. One storm after another, overflowing rivers, flooding farms, roads, and neighborhoods, causing landslides, more than 400 in the last two and a half weeks, some catastrophic. We have seen damage from down in Santa Barbara and Montecito all the way up uh, north um, on the coast, in the valley, in the mountains. Um, it has really hit us hard from one part of the state to the next. After three years of extreme drought in California, the state received about a year's worth of rain in a matter of weeks. By some estimates, 22 to 25 trillion gallons of water have fallen over the course of the last 16, 17 days. At least 19 people have died as a result of the storms. Hundreds more were rescued across the state from a man who drove off a cliff, his SUV dangling over crashing waves, and a woman airlifted from a creek after clinging to a tree amid rapidly rising waters in Southern California, to families evacuated from a mobile home park that flooded in the northern part of the state. A coastal road west of San Jose collapsed as the ground, saturated by rain, gave way. It can get nasty. It really can. 
north of San Francisco. A resident says his apartment complex was overrun by debris as a hillside collapsed with trees crashing through bathroom windows. It was coming down this broad and about this deep, all mud flow. I've just been crossing fingers every night when I go to bed that I wake up and we don't have a tree down. It's really devastating. It makes, I, it's, it just breaks my heart and just the flooding and it's almost unbelievable. The Sierra Nevada mountains, already hit by three feet of snow, are expecting another two to three feet, adding relief for the state's water supply and lingering drought. But the snow and high winds are making travel treacherous. Sliding all over the road, it, you know, you got to know what you're doing in the snow or at least have a plan. For this Santa Cruz County community, a unique plan, a zip line to cross their local creek after the bridge washed out. Well, you live in the woods, you know, you just kind of got to be prepared. We're resilient group up here. We do have... Uh... Our thanks to CNN's Natasha Chen for that report. And coming up, what happens behind the scenes at an NFL game that can mean the difference between life and death? Now a behind-the-scenes look into how the NFL puts together emergency action plans before each game that helps save the life of the Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta shows us the critical and life-saving protocols in place to keep players safe. When Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest, the game stopped. Now another Bills player is down. Maybe Hamlin. But for the emergency response team, everything was just getting started. Go ahead and go over to the cop. I don't like how he went down. We're going to need everybody. All call. All call. Bring everybody. We need the other way everybody. Bring the cop with the medics, all of you, and get Woods out here. As rare as this all is, I'm going to explain now the remarkable chain of events that came together to save DeMar Hamlin's life. So this is actually the EAP for... It starts with this. So what is the EAP? What does that stand for? It stands for Emergency Action Plan. And, and that takes place for every game. So basically any time or any place that players are going to be active, there has to be an emergency action plan. have been administering CPR. The EAP was followed to a letter that night. In that moment, everyone knew what they needed to do, how they needed to do it, and had the equipment to do it and felt comfortable. Dr. Alan Sills is chief medical officer of the NFL. He's giving me a sideline view of the preparedness that goes into every game day. And once you see this, you will probably never watch a game the same way again. You may have missed this pop-up blue tent. It's on every sideline. It's like a medical exam room. Now we've kind of made this a medical space, even in the middle of a very busy stadium. It's just so much easier to do things in here, because like I said, everybody's just more relaxed. You don't have the cameras, you don't have the fans. Or this, the injury review screen. So we can be down here on the sideline, and the spotter's booth, if they've seen an injury video, they'll cue it up for us, put on the video exactly what we need to see. We can ask them to run it back. We can talk, and we can talk to the spotters booth. They are the eyes right. in the sky. Hey. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. So uh, this, this is, is another part of our game day medical preparations. And the real goal of this booth is to help spot any injuries or illnesses on the field. It can be hard to see the whole field from down there. Right. Probably to me one of the most unique things in sports is the spotter can directly communicate down to the referee. These people can stop the game. 
So we watch every every play probably minimally four times, and then we'll we'll go back and watch it again. Got and it. so you know, we just want to make sure we don't miss anything. It's always about the right people, the right plan, and the right equipment. We have almost 30 medical professionals, and everyone has a job to do. ER doctors, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, paramedics, x-ray techs, and airway specialists like Dr. Justin Deaton. So this is the bag that I carry, um, and it's got a number of things in here that we could use. Um, the first thing is um, a portable video laryngoscope. We have a portable ultrasound machine um, that we can use, and we also have the ability to perform surgical airways. I really have uh, all the resources available here um, that I would have in an emergency room. What's the biggest challenge of, of that scenario versus being in an emergency room? Well, the biggest challenge is, is the external environment and the chaos of the situation. When you have a... a larger than average sized person that's laying flat on the ground and not able to be elevated to a certain level with extra equipment plus you know cameras and, and other people around. Those are really the, the confounders and things that make, uh, make it more difficult to, to manage. How does everyone know you're the guy in, in charge? I wear a, a red hat on the sideline and that signifies me as the uh, emergency physician, the airway physician, so that even the other team knows when I come out what my role is. Every game comes with new lessons. For example, on September 25th, when Miami Dolphin Tua Tungavailoa stumbled after a hit, he was allowed back in the game. That won't happen again. You know, we changed the protocol earlier this year when you and I spoke to say, if we see something that looks like a taxi on video, they're also done. And as the teams all warm up, there is one final crucial step. Every time I'm in the operating room, we do something known as a timeout. Everyone stops what they're doing, make sure that everyone's on the same page. This is the same sort of thing that's happening here behind me. It's called a 60-minute meeting. It happens 60 minutes before every game. A chance for all the medical professionals to make sure that they know who each other are and make sure that they know who's going to do what if there's some sort of crisis out on the field. <laughs> all right, so uh, let's start with introductions so that everybody's familiar with the medical staff that's here at the game. Uh, I'm Kevin Kaplan, head team physician orthopedics with the Jaguars. Justin Deaton, airway management physician. So uh, most important thing, Justin is going to be on our 30-yard line. Um, he stands just to our right. If a player goes down, obviously it, he won't know if it's orthopedic or internal medicine. He'll step out onto the field. Our all-call sign is an X. So if you need him to come out, uh, he will come out with an X. Uh, all of the important equipment, airway, uh, defibrillator, all the medications are all behind him uh, with our paramedics on our sideline. If a player needs to get taken off of the field, uh, the ambulance is going to be in the tunnel to your right. If you need anything at all, we'll be out there for you guys if you need us. Otherwise, hope we have a safe and healthy game. Good luck. Now keep in mind the medical team was able to get to DeMar Hamlin within 10 seconds. And speed really matters here. Every additional minute that someone in cardiac arrest goes without CPR, mortality goes up by up to 10%. This is a process that's in place for every single game, and we train in the offseason, and just like the players train and practice, we do as well. So I have tremendous confidence, but um, you always want to see a game with no injuries, and, and you want everyone to, to uh, frankly, be bored on the medical side. That's a good game from my standpoint. I hear you. Pamela, I got to tell you, it was just fascinating to, to see that all unfold. And it's worth pointing out the game of football has changed a lot. Even over the last 20 years, there's been some 50 rule changes to try and make it safer. At the same time, Pamela, players are getting bigger, faster, stronger. So the medical capabilities need to keep 
changing in order to keep up uh, and try to prevent as many of those injuries as possible. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you. I'm Pamela Brown and for Jake Tapper, our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room after this short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.